Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Rachel. And I'm Freddie. And this is the New Statesman's Politics Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be discussing Keir Starmer's speech to Labour Party conference, probably his last before a general election. Hello, I'm Anoush Shikelian, Britain editor of The New Statesman and host of this podcast. And we're coming to you once again from our strange cushioned booth in Liverpool Conference Centre. And we're all fresh from a packed hall where we were watching Keir Starmer's speech. Joining me, I have Rachel Wearmouth, deputy political editor and Freddie Hayward, political correspondent. The speech started off quite dramatically. Um, there was the usual slick video of, you know, Starmer pulling pints and meeting babies and, you know, all sorts of things. Um, and he came on stage to, to a standing ovation, but not long after a protester pelted onto the stage and covered him in glitter. And he was actually sort of had his arm around him. It was quite physical for, for a while. Yeah, um, it was it quite physical. Bit, I thought it felt a bit scary, actually. Yeah, I think because he was on the stage, wasn't he? So yeah. somehow he'd got to that close to Keir Starmer and then security rushed on and I think effectively tackled him to the floor. I don't, I've not yet seen who it was. I think he had some green sparkles in his hand. Have we found out, Anoush? Yeah, so he was, um, he threw glitter over Starmer and he had a T-shirt that said, people demand democracy. And apparently he was yelling, but we couldn't really hear him in the hall, but um, he was saying he wanted citizen-led democracy and a people's house. And this is sort of this campaign for a house of citizens rather than a house of commons and sort of cha radical changes to how our democracy works. In terms of, you know, in terms of if this was going to happen, and I'm sure his team will be furious that this has happened, this is probably the least bad protest because it's nothing politically sensitive for Labour. You know, we all know what's going on in Israel at the moment. It could have been a campaigner who was, you know, exercised by that issue. It wasn't. Um, and it also wasn't someone who was campaigning about anything that sort of Labour's necessarily rode back on. OK, yeah, it's holding back on proportional representation, but you know, it's not it's not a sort of fiery issue at this conference. Nevertheless, it's an unideal start to your conference speech, I suppose, isn't it? If someone jumps up on stage, covers you in glitter, you have to get changed, you have to reorient your state of mind, you know, really. Um, I think certainly if it was me making a huge speech at, at a point in my political party cycle like this one, you know, speech before an election, it would really put you off your stride and really make you uncomfortable about your safety. But to make a lighter note, there was just a fraction 
of a second where I thought Keir Starmer was going to nut him. <laughs> <laughs> I love that that's your lighter note. <laughs> he did look absolutely furious. And he and he gathered himself quite quickly. But um, And so he ended up looking sort of quite amusing for a while because he had his sleeves pulled. He took his jacket off, had his sleeves pulled up on his shirt, but also his hair was just covered in glitter. So he's like half fabulous, half like ready for a fight. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think he managed it extremely well. He was very calm, very composed. Compare that to the protest that we saw in Leith when the students behind him unfurled a banner calling for the Green New Deal. He didn't handle that well at all. He didn't engage with them. He didn't uh, address their point. He basically just said, why are you here? Whereas he made a joke here. He said, well, if you think that bothers me, you don't know me. It brought the whole crowd on board. And Rachel, you were saying before we came on that it also added this uh, sense of excitement, this sense of something at stake a little bit. It was part of the drama of the performance. Um, and then he and then he ploughed on. So he didn't let him affect it. Yeah, all, I think so he said it's it a good job well. it was me and not my wife because she's wearing a nice dress. And, you know, he kind of, he had, a, he had a few things that he pulled out of his pocket. And what about his manner in general during the speech? Because I thought it was, you could see a real steeliness to him, I thought, in this particular speech. I was speaking to someone earlier at the, at the conference who'd had a meeting with him a couple of days ago at this conference. And I was like, oh, what mood was he in? What did he seem like? And the person who was telling me this said, he seems scary. And I've never heard that description <laughs> of Starmer before. But I think it ties into this... Um, this uh, idea that people have of him that he is actually very competitive and he is like really focused and um, there's that com command and control element as well. We heard about how much the Shadow Treasury team and also the leaders team were managing the the messaging. In, in a way, pulling yourself back together and getting back to the podium kind of, it was a bit of the narrative of the speech as well when he talked about the hope of the long road. It was all about national resolve. It was about, you know, public services recovering from being battered um, it was about some of the lies of Brexit and the mental exhaustion people feel kind of fit that theme. <laughs> that's how it kicked off in a way. But yeah, it's, yeah, I think that kind of came across and that's what he was trying to communicate, I think, that like you just plough on, you keep going. Yeah, I mean, his general demeanour wasn't, it wasn't a barnstorming rally that brought everyone on board, which I think Rachel Reeves tapped into very well yesterday. Yeah, it was but very it was different. Yeah. Very different, but it was accomplished. It was professional. You could sense his conviction and his beliefs, it tied so many of the themes of the past year together in a way that I don't think we've yet seen. I don't think much of it was a surprise. It's just that Labour, apart from what people say, have so many policies, they have so many ideas. The briefing documents, if you actually do spend time to read them all, contain... As you nugget, do, Freddie. As I do, every <laughs> single week. Um, to contain, their frustration. <laughs> contain so many nuggets and ideas and policies and also broad ideas about how where they want to take the, the country... Uh, that people often lose sight of that. And I think having this speech bring it all together under this broader theme of rebuilding the future was extremely um, important for the party, but also quite effective. Yeah. And I think you can try and be a bit too clever by half. I try to have a bit too much of a, a funny, funny joke or whatever, but he, I don't think that's what he, the, the tone he was trying to strike. You know, the sort of, the one or two jokes I think he fitted in weren't in the script. He's like, I had fish and chips, Vic had... Victoria, his wife, had a plant burger and he's like, see, we don't focus group everything. But that was... It's quite it, self-referential, I suppose. He knows, yeah. he knows the criticisms of the way that he's running things and kind of, yeah, made a reference to that. Similarly with the mention of his pebble dash semi, which kind of got a, a laugh from the crowd and and, and his dad, another reference to his dad being How a toolmaker as well. How are people still laughing well. at that? Yeah. How? But the thing is, if we're laughing, I always say this, if we're laughing yeah. and groaning at it, it means that he's said it's it enough. Through. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And actually, and I wanted to move on to this actually, um, it's interesting that when you saw that word cloud that he was faced with on the Laura Koonsberg programme um, on the sort of eve of conference, um, 
the one of the one of the descriptions that the public associate with him was working class, and that's something that his team were quite happy with and picked up on and thought was quite interesting. And so clearly, this this um, this narrative has has cut through because that was from More in Common, which has you know very very detailed voter segmentations. It's a it's a sort of public sentiment company, um, and he he focused on class. He talked about how working class people hear a voice saying you don't belong at points in their lives. And he said, trust me, you know, that's, that's what people feel. I grew up working class. I've been fighting all my life. I won't stop now. So that brings in that fight kind of as well. But they've definitely got this confidence in talking about class that was very different from the Tony Blair era when they declared class was over and we're all middle class now. Yeah. And Keir Starmer can use his working class background to talk about the cost of living crisis in a way that Rishi Sunak can't even pretend to. Rishi Sunak is still talking in these abstract ideals about inflation and GDP. Keir Starmer can talk about house building. He talk about uh, when his family experienced the cost of living crisis of the 70s. He can relate to people with an authenticity that Rishi Sunak lacks. And he isn't even seeming to try to convey or grasp or build on. He just lacks it. Um, and I think that was most notable now in the past. Keir Starmer has always been quite um, uneasy about talking about himself. It's not conveyed naturally. Now we can relate it to policy issues. He's he's much more much more relaxed about doing so. It's not it's not hopey changey sort of pie in the sky kind of stuff either. It's it felt like more like realism resolve. And if you think about the polling that they're probably looking at, the people just feel more cynical than ever. You know, less trusting of politicians because of Brexit, because of you know the things that the country's been through over the last however many years. And I think that kind of realism. I think could appeal. I think it taps into a national mood. It's also worth noting how conservative this speech was. It was a theme as well of uh, Keir Starmer's leadership that he's dropped some of the extremes of social liberalism that we saw under Jeremy Corbyn. Um, he stopped talking about uh, issues around race as much as people used to then. He stopped talking about gender politics as much as people did back then. And he's replaced that, I think, with some extremely conservative values. There's a section in the speech where he describes the party as focusing on conserving, fighting for our union, the rule of law, the importance of family life, the careful bond between this generation and the next. These are archetypal conservative values, and that's where Keir Starmer's taken the party on those social cultural issues. Um, and, and let's talk a bit about, so there weren't that many big new policy announcements in this speech. Rachel, you mentioned the house building. Um, so what we've heard today was that Labour planned to get Britain building again with a plan for 1.5 million homes and a host of Labour new towns. So this is a sort of housing settlement project on the scale of what we saw after the Second World War with the towns like Stevenage, Milton Keynes, Harlow. Basically, let's make lots of new swing seats in this country. <laughs> um, oh, that's cynical, Anish. Come on. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, so this is quite interesting because I think a lot of critics of this Labour leadership want a 1945 moment rather than a 1997 moment. This is something Sharon Graham, the head of Unite, told me when I interviewed her before the conference. And actually, this kind of nods to that because, you know, this was the New Towns Act after it was in 1946. Will they be able to do it? I mean, what are they laying the groundwork for it? They're talking about um, bulldozing through planning. Yeah, and the, but it also talks about a new wave of devolution, essentially. So it's yeah. empowering mayors to um, push through some housing developments. It's, um, it talks about a written ministerial statement directing different authorities to come up with targets to hit those targets. Yeah, it's kind of been very forceful about it. And it ties into the message of, you know, smashing the class ceiling with some of the education announcements that were in there as well for like new technical colleges. 
again, quite close to some of the conservative policy that we've seen. There's very little that actually divides them apart from, as, as Freddie rightly says, the authenticity element and just the, the feeling of the, like this being a party that you can rely on and that doesn't change all of the time. Yeah, I was speaking to one Labour source last night and I don't think the messaging on the 1.5 million homes has gone exactly as they wanted it to. I, they were basically saying that Keir Starmer shouldn't have announced it on the Laura Koonsberg show on Sunday and that was maybe a mistake. Um, and hence it, was, <laughs> it wasn't um, spoken about in the next few days. It was supposed to be reserved for the speech. Uh, so that's probably that's why people don't um, recognise that it is actually a massive policy. And I think it, I, I'm not, I won't do the maths on live, but I think it breaks down into about 350,000 um, a year, which is much bigger than the uh, government's previous target of 300,000. But the new homes idea, once you combine all of these, sorry, the new towns idea, uh, devolution, Go smashing through planning changes, making changes to the national planning policy framework. Once you collate these things, uh, rather than announcing them week on week, once you put them all together in a speech, you can see how Labour can uh, realistically go to the public and say, actually, we want to build houses in a way that the Conservative Party can't even compete with. And one of the big problems that they've had and something they've been concerned about is how do we sell building on the green belt? And there was this very interesting phrase that Keir Starmer used, belt. the grey belt. That was, that, was, that was good. That was actual, actually good political messaging. It, it sort of, it questioned the sort of supremacy of the green belt as an idea and reminded people that parts of the green belt aren't this green um, paradise or this Eden that we think exists uh, all around the country. Sometimes it's car parks and it's sometimes um, old bin sites or what have you. Yeah, but they will have to build on some beautiful parts of the country to build new towns and all of these houses. And I think that is going to be a battle if they get in because they're going to have, you know, a number of new MPs in new areas um, who will want to protect sort of the beautiful countryside that they're representing so they don't have to, you know, so they're not sort of ousted after the first five years. You know, he did talk about a decade of national renewal. So people will want to have more than one term. After the break, we'll be discussing more about the speech and whether or not these speeches ever really cut through. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on The New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I was speaking to one pollster last night and they were reminding me about the absolute monopoly that the cost of living and the NHS are currently having on voters' priorities. That's what they're concerned about. They resent the Tories to a, to a degree that we've not seen in a very long time. Um, and I thought it was interesting that Keir Starmer found a way of talking about the cost of living crisis, as we said, in a way that I don't think he's done uh, before and also the NHS featured so prominently as well. Yeah, I'm really glad that you mentioned that actually because this was my favourite part of the speech um, about joy and he tied the cost of living crisis to the sort of the way that it chips away at, I think he says it whittles away at the joy in our lives or the little things that we do that we love. 
And I thought he 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 did this really nicely about the, his family holiday in the Lake District this summer and comparing that to a mum that he spoke to in Worthing who said she was just living in survival mode day to day. She had no time to do do anything nice. Um, and I've kind of been banging on about this in pieces for a while that politicians should talk more about the good things in life. And the, this also linked to the idea of the state. You know, the state is there to sort out some of the fundamentals, sort of things for your security, and then you can choose to do the things that you enjoy. Yeah, completely. Um, it was noticeable that he threw that in there because it's what people talk about. It's what how people experience politics as well. Is when they don't have those things, when they can't do that, that's when they notice. Yes, of course, they care about GPs and being able to go to the NHS and have a proper functioning health service. Yes, of course, they care about defence. But if you can't afford to go on holiday, then it just makes your life ever that much more depressing. Uh, and and you 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 try and you want change, and that's another thing that was key, and it's also a, a key thing in politics right now changes the message from both parties the question and we should also reference how uh this compares with rishi sunak's speech last week and how much more i think coherent this was the key thing about rishi sunak's speech was this incoherence and the whole conference was incoherent whereas this uh i think was a much more coherent um plan for change eve and if they both fight on change um it strikes me that keir starmer represents it in a much better way than rishi sunak does yeah, that's interesting. And and I, what I found interesting was that um, he really did focus on, there wasn't that much attacking of other parties. There was a bit on the SNP and their sort of failed nationalism. And there was, you know, quite a bit on conservative failings. But the main thing that he focused on in terms of that was Partygate. And I think we forget as journalists, because we work day to day on very fast sort of schedules, we think, oh, well, that was, you know, a few years ago now. We're talking about something different now. It sticks in the public's mind. I mean, you know, People that I've been speaking in Liverpool, the taxi driver who brought me here this morning was talking about Partygate. It's, it's still there. It's the same with the COVID cronyism, which was why Reeves's announcement of the COVID fraud commission to try and claw back some of that money was really good politics because people are still angry about that time. Starmer mentioned that in his speech as well. The key thing as well was that so many of the, that were included in the speech have been around for such a long time. It's just they were expressed in a way which I think was much more convincing. Keir Starmer was first very critical of Westminster, I think it was back in January when he did his big um, take back control speech in East London. And he was that's when he started talking about sticking plaster politics. But it but he spoke um, much more convincingly this time about how the Conservatives just see the public services, people, voters um, as pieces on a board. I, I do think that does tap into a sense in the country going on from what you said, Anoush, about Partygate, that there is a separation between Westminster and, and voters. And as you say, people remember that whether it's uh, COVID fraud or whether it's Partygate, the Tories in many ways were seen to have a different experience of the pandemic. And of course, people remember that. And lastly, we should just talk about, you know, do these speeches actually matter? I mean, who watches them? What do they see of them? Do they ever shift the dial? Well, everyone watching TV at 2pm on a Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> a key constituency. <laughs> Um, anecdotal, but last week when I was at the Conservative Party conference, I was surprised by how many people who were not at all interested in politics got in touch with me to talk to me about the speech. And again, the same this week. I think people are starting to tune in because they recognise that they're going to have to make a choice fairly soon and they have to listen to what these guys say because they might have to cast a vote at some point. But generally, no. But I think this one might be different because everyone's aware that it's close to a general election. So this one did feel more important. Well, I was listening to the the news breaks and music radio this morning, which is, I think, a, a way that a lot of people get their news. If they hear any politics at all, it will be them. 
And the line was, Keir Starmer is laying out his pitch for why he should be prime minister. And I thought that was quite interesting because it's sort of, like you say, it does make people aware that there, there is an election down the line and, and that sort of trying to imagine someone being your next prime minister is therefore like lodged in those headlines. Yeah, completely. I don't think we should overstate how important these things are. Most people do not watch them. They might be lucky to get um, some of the headlines in the news this evening. Of course, um, much of public attention at the moment is completely focused on the conflict in Israel. Um, so lots of the politics that's happened here has been overshadowed. That doesn't mean necessarily that it doesn't set the tone for what goes forward. All the media are here, key members of his team are here. We, as we just discussed, we have seen some of the arguments be refined and distilled and that will go out and it will define parts of their campaign going forwards. Um, but in and of itself, we should not overstate the importance of it. I think they're, to some to some extent, they have more importance internally for a party. So um, it helps them helps a party leader deal with some of their critics, helps them signal things like, you know, I'm... A, I'm aware of your concerns around investment in the future. Um, it's a, it's just an important event in terms of political management as well as, um, yeah, advertising your party to the public. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Rachel Wearmouth and Freddie Hayward. We'll be back later this week with a You Ask Us episode. If you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. And if you're listening on Spotify, just scroll down on the episode page and type your reply. This episode was produced by Catherine Hughes. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.